Okay, thanks for joining us once again. And uh, Kyle is with us. And we are this time talking about risk management. Um, with that, I'm just going to go ahead and delve into the, the first question and we'll get started. Uh, what are some of the most important risks, Kyle, that you must address for Cabarrus County? Okay, well, uh, obviously working for local government, we have certain requirements on, on the bonds that are, you know, required performance bonds, bid bonds, things like that. that's all pretty much um, black and white. You, you can find it in the book. Uh, there's a chart that tells you exactly what you need to have. So people like me can follow that chart. Usually what, what is a challenge to me is uh, we provide our own builder's risk insurance. I can typically get it at a better rate than the contractor can provide it. Um, and actually, when we get a little bit farther into this conversation, that that's going to be different in a different situation in terms of the buying power of the contractor versus me. But in this instance, I can get a better rate or, you know, kind of a better premium on our builder's risk insurance. But to do that, I have to be able to answer, you know, 22 different questions about the building um, to obviously to my broker who is actually, you know, just going to go out and go to all these different providers, you know, you're Liberty Mutual, your travelers, pretty much anybody you see on a commercial that has a, a duck or an emu in it. So we we have to know how that building is going to be built. So I do have to be through a somewhat of a schematic design or at least be through programming and have a narrative on both how the building is going to be built, which a lot of that is predicated by where it's going and how tall it is. So sometimes I don't even need the architect. I can just, I know then I kind of need to understand a little bit of the MEP system and kind of how it's going to be built because those are some of the questions that go into the risk of it. Um, and then the site, whenever you're getting builders risk insurance, they, the, the folks always want to know about the site. Is it, is it a downtown site? Is it, is it green land, meaning never been built on? So all those things that I think would be assuming risk or liability from something going on around it. There's a, there's a difference policy that you would need to have if you're building in <clears throat> uptown Charlotte versus if you're building out in the middle of nowhere in Union County. Um, so they always have to, they always have to ask me those questions. I also need to have a budget dollar figure and you really can't do that until you have a schematic design because obviously your policy covers you for the value of the building while it's being built, hence the, the term builder's risk. So that's kind of um, what I need to have uh, ahead of time. I, I work with a very good broker um, it's a large broker. Um, they handle all of our insurance for the county. So, you know, think 1,200 employees. They handle the workers' comp coverage, all the automobile liability coverage. So they do this stuff all the time. I will tell you there's been some instances where I've run across that my broker is also the broker for the construction manager at risk or the contractor, which is sometimes a challenge uh, when you get into uh, – CSIPs or OSIPs, and we will talk about those in, in, I think, in the next question. Glenda, you're muted. Thank you. So sorry about that. Okay, so yes, the um, question, we're actually continuing on you know, the original question, what are some of the important risks? And uh, you moved into a discussion as, as you and I were, you know, planning for this session where you were going to let the students know 
about CSIPs, what they are, uh, that type of information. Can you give us more background sure, on that? Sure. Um, and I ran into this years ago, uh, the difference between an OSIP and a CSIP. So it's an acronym that stands, CSIP stands for Contractor Controlled Insurance Program. And, and OSIP, obviously, just it means Owner Controlled Insurance Program. You see them on large projects, so probably above 50, $60 million. Um, and, and we've only had two of those in the past couple of years. And I ran into it uh, years and years ago with this, this other project. And when they first said the acronym, obviously, I didn't know what it meant. Um, so I had to quickly uh, figure out what it meant. But it basically, all those subs that are coming on your site with a project that's that large. So, so dollar value obviously drives the number of trades and subs and the number of employees you have coming on there. All of those are on your site and you're liable for all of them workers' comp, general liability, uh, auto liability, although that's probably not as much of a concern as the general and the workers' comp. So you kind of need to decide how you're going to cover that. In most cases, and I think the market is probably trending this way, um, maybe not for very, very large private um, developers, but it, at least for municipality and county government, we're, we're very much, we push that on the contractor. So I wanted them to carry their own CSIP. So that means I pay for it in my, and I'm talking about construction manager at risk projects. So when I have a, I have a 14 page spreadsheet of all the costs of, of my GMP, one of my GMPs for, for my construction manager at risk project. And one of the line items literally says CSIP and I'm paying a certain percentage for them to manage that. And that means all of the liability is on that. I won't even hear about it. It won't, if something happens over there, it is completely taken care of. Now, if I used an OSIP, I would be using my broker to go out and get a policy. And if Joe cuts off his finger over there, then I got to spring into action. And then I got to call people. They got to come out. They got to do an investigation. It takes using a CSIP takes all of that off the table. And, and I'm, um, I'm not trying to be a, a uh, I'm not working for the construction manager at risks or, or construction companies right now, but when I started looking at the pros and cons of it, quite honestly, the management of it, um, you know, they tell you, oh, you won't have to do anything if you have an OSIP. They'll only, trust me, you won't even have to go over there and look, but I know enough about insurance um, that, you know, Anytime you get any type of building covered or anything like that, they want to know everything about it. And then they, they come out and do inspections. Because even for my builder's risk insurance policies, they come out and they inspect that building. And that means I got to walk with them through that building. And I got I to point out, you know, what this is, what that is, uh, you know, is that, is that post-stressed concrete? You know, I have to point out all this stuff to them. And that takes time. And when I started looking at the dollar values of what my premium was going to cost me versus what the contractor could provide, that's when it became very apparent that large construction companies have an extreme amount of buying power. Because keep in mind, they're providing CSIPs for, let's call it 13 big projects in, in the Mideast, okay? So their broker is going out and getting these things for every state they're working on on this coastline. And that gives them a heck of a lot of buying power, more than I have for the $100 million project we do every five years. You know, it just doesn't make financial sense. And then on the, on the flip side of that, when I was looking at 
what happens if, if something happens on site, which let's be honest, it's a five-year project, it's $109 million. I got more people probably going through that site in a day than I have going through some of my buildings. So I started to kind of equate and figure that out. And I was like, yeah, we're going to go with a CSIP and not an OSIP. Yeah, you know, I think an analogy to that is, um, you know, I, I, I often think of those people that they try to, for example, build their own homes and they say, well, you know, I'm buying all of the, you know, pieces and parts. And I'm like, yeah, but you're paying, you know, personal prices versus this, these great prices that the contractor can get, you know, how much are you really saving? And I think, you know, that's kind of a parallels exactly what you were talking about. It's that purchasing power that, that really, um, that they have in that case. So that makes a lot of sense. That's very helpful. It goes back to the staff you have and the organization you have, you know, if you, I mean, um, myself and a couple of us over here, you know, we're managing right now eight different large projects like that that are going on, you know, and, and you're talking about needing to be able to be laser focused on that. I can't, I can't do that. That's not what the taxpayers are paying me to do. They're, they're paying me to use a skeleton crew to manage a lot of different projects and make really smart business decisions as, as you go. And I, I think a lot of that depends on your organization, and your staff. You know, if you can, if you can sit there with your finger on everything, then, you know, so be it, have at. But um, we couldn't. And when I started looking at the dollars, it didn't make sense. But yeah, I think that that kind of dovetails into how to understand, you know, risk is there's risk in everything you do, but risk can be mitigated by other people assuming the risk, you assuming the risk or you having the right type of organization or maybe the right schedule to be able to take more risk on with this project than you did with the other one. You know, if I didn't have any other projects going on, maybe, maybe I could have taken that on. Maybe I could have been okay with that. Okay. Well, thank you. That's, that's an awesome background on that information. I think the only other thing that we um, discussed in terms of, uh, you know, some of the important risk was that you had um, also mentioned, you know, once the building's built, and, you know, things like slips, trips, and falls, um, those sure. types of risks. Can you give us a little bit of background about things like yeah. that? Yeah, uh, actually, yes, I can talk about once we build the building. As, as I also wanted to point out, one of the things that we run into a lot, just based on some of the areas that we build in, is anything underground. Um, so we run liability right. on underground stuff. So underground storage tanks, telephone, old telephone wire, um, fiber optics, uh, utilities that didn't were put in when there was no such thing as tracer wire, um, asbestos line pipes. That's my new one. I've been hitting a lot of those lately. You got to be really lucky to get that and an underground storage tank all in one day. Um, so if you're, if you're in these projects, uh, if you're working for a municipality or a developer or private, do your homework on your, your phase twos and, you know, your underground, whether you're using ground penetrating radar or whether you're probing, you know, unless it's a green field, I'd say do your homework. Um, we utilize a lot of GIS because the county is, is the home of the GIS uh, website. So we do a lot of looking at historical, um, I'll actually have a guy that goes out there and does research for me 
And he can tell me when there was a dry cleaners there, you know, 72 years ago. And I can kind of use that to focus on where um, my geotech people should be looking uh, on the site for areas that I think I'm going to be concerned with, meaning where I think I might find a tank. Um, and, you know, back in the day, there appeared to be like a service station on every single corner in, in Concord. So it's just, I just get lucky where I, I hit a lot of these. So we try to use a lot of historical data, but do your due diligence on geotech because it can come back and, and bite you. And if you go to work for a contractor, make sure your client did their due diligence or you build in hefty allowances um, if they didn't. So I can tell you in a lot of the large construction projects we've been doing, the minute they show up, they're like, I'd like to see your asbestos survey. I'd like to see your phase two. I'd like to see your geotech work. And I, that makes me feel comfortable that that contractor has probably been burned in the past and is like, all right, I want to make sure I have all this so I can see where my problems. And quite frankly, it makes the family get along a lot better throughout the marriage. Um, the, what you were what you were touching on is when the building is built. And I will tell you that um, any municipality or county takes on a ton of risk when they open up a building uh, and when they operate a building. So I can tell you, I probably get two to three phone calls every three weeks about I tripped on your sidewalk or I tripped on your stairs or it, there wasn't a wet sign there wasn't a floor wet sign your mat your mat curled up I got a lot of mats that magically curl up everywhere um, and I will tell you to know your site um, walk your site and walk your transition so nobody really thinks about this stuff until you're responsible for managing it but <clears throat> most of the time the building doesn't own the sidewalk that meets up to the building. Okay. So you, you own a certain, and this is no matter if you're a private developer or you're a property manager, you've got a certain apron around your building that you own. That's your property line. And it butts up against most likely in most cases, a municipal or a city sidewalk. And when those edges don't match, or there's a difference in elevation, that's a trip hazard and building code has what it is. And and you can go out to the city of Charlotte and they have a group that does nothing but go measure sidewalks and get them scheduled to be ripped out or shaved down so that they don't have trips. And that's literally an, an entire division. And we do a lot of it here where we, we have sinking sidewalks that aren't our own. And you know we build a new building or do a new entrance and you start to get that elevation change. And we spend a lot of time, we have groups that come in and literally shave down almost, almost like sawing sideways is probably the best way to describe it. And they'll, they'll saw that down so that you'll get your ADA slope and you'll get your meat on it. So I'd say, look a lot about that. Look at your canopies and where your water drips because that creates a, a lot of problems for me on slips and also um, freezing. If you've got bird baths and parking lots that it never seems to fail that I always have the employee or the citizen that wants to park where there is a sheet of ice because that's just their parking spot. And I'm like, well, there was 52 other spots to park in. Yeah, but this is the one I want to park in. Well, that's the one where you have a bird bath or like an indent in the asphalt and it constantly gets the water in there. So, you know, doing those, um, those walkthroughs and I know because I've worked in, in private property management for, for class A office space. You, you do a lot of property walkthroughs, both inside and outside. So sometimes you're just looking for the dead shrubs so, the, so you can get them pulled and get the new shrubs in there so that everything can look beautiful. But other times you need to be looking at the liability standpoint. 
So when you walk those parking lots and you walk those sidewalks, think about how your feet move and how things transition and try to be uh, in front of that. And that's a lot of what we look at in the design. We've, we've got um, two folks that work for us that a lot of what they spend time doing is looking at the transition from, I'm gonna call it the exterior of the building to the interior. And we try to look at that in the, in the beginning. That's very interesting. All right, so um, that actually kind of ties into our next question where um, we do cover ADA issues along with our risk management portion of the course. Um, how do you guys prioritize and address some of the ADA issues that you have in the county? Um, prioritizing, we're obviously required, you know, under, under certain titles, you're required to go through and do assessments of your buildings, and we have them. We actually just finished up on two of our libraries. Um, I'll give you an example. For, for Mecklenburg, I think they've got 28 to 30 libraries. I lost count. And they hire one firm to do all of the ADA assessments. So that's going in and does your AED, you know, come to, does it protrude too much from the wall? Is your fire hydrant, is your computer monitor at the right size? Do you have the right swing on the door? Do you have the right turning radius in the bathroom stall? Yada, yada, yada. Uh, we actually hired that same group um, because we did an RFQ process and they used that in their RFQ presentation. And obviously they had a lot of experience. So we, we get those reports. Um, you can hire any architect to do them. There's actually other companies that are not uh, licensed architects that do them and they'll give you pictures. And then we basically assign those to uh, different project managers that we have in, in different service techs. Uh, some of them are just lowering a fire hydrant or raising. Um, some of the more challenging ones when you get into restroom renovations are extremely difficult. And I, I'm gonna tell you why. So. The turning radius has increased and probably will continue to increase. Um, despite technology getting better, you, I would, you would think the motorized carts would get smaller. Uh, and I make that argument all the time, but apparently they carry more batteries now than they ever did. So you've got some larger turning radiuses that you have to have in your bathrooms. And what we have found is when we've renovated and we've done this at three different locations, we've renovated these restrooms to make them ADA compliant. Um, when we did those, <clears throat> we actually lost plumbing fixtures, uh, typically toilets, which you know you have building code that you gotta have a certain amount of toilets in the building for the number of occupants. So I can tell you in one of our buildings, the next renovation we'll do will fall under the threshold, meaning we will have less um, fixtures than we're required. And we'll actually have to build a new restroom and that one will be ADA compliant too. But We'll have to build a new restroom just to get our just to get back up to code. So I, I think um, you know, kind of looking at what what ADA, which is most of it's in building code now, but how it affects your other building code issues. Uh, that's been interesting for us. We have a lot of 80s and, and early 80s and late 80s buildings that aren't that far off of ADA compliance. So I'm talking maybe a couple handrails that are thicker than they should be and you can't get your, your hands around them or maybe you're off a couple inches on, on, a, on a turning radius in a, in a restroom. So not, not much, but still not ADA compliant. And to bring those up to code, the domino effect of what it does to other portions of your building and what you have to do, um, 
that's kind of where we are now. We've gotten all the low hanging fruit, meaning we it, at our parks, not all of our trails are obviously ADA compliant. And I'm not just talking surface material, I'm talking slope because I'm not gonna go in there and you know rip out what the world created just so that it can have the right slope. So what we've done is we've gone and created um, certain loops in the park that are ADA compliant slope wise. So we've added things to, to be able to provide um, ADA accessibility for certain things. But um, we're starting to get to the point where the, the changes that we're gonna have to make to kind of get to that ADA compliance are gonna be big, big ticket items. So when you ask about prioritizing, I would not want to say that I prioritize on, on dollar figure. We actually prioritize probably on impact, meaning the sheer number of, of folks that we're going to impact. Um, and that's what we try to go with. Really what we struggle with a lot now is downtown parking in terms of ADA. Um, we actually just, we had built a surface lot about five years ago. It was the most expensive surface lot I'll probably ever build um, just because of I had a demo a site, it was at a challenging um, elevation. We put it in there and we actually put in triple the amount <clears throat> of handicap spots that were required. And we did that because we felt that, that that parking lot location provided the best location for folks that needed to have a handicap parking to get to an assortment of buildings, even buildings that we don't own. So we kind of made that conscious decision. I remember when we opened it, I got a lot of feedback of, I can't even park here. It's all handicap parking. And I was like, yes, that's kind of what we're trying to accomplish. So I would tell you that as you see buildings in downtown settings, and, and this also dovetails into security, which obviously is on everyone's mind. So we have certain concerns about you being able to park a car in front of some of our buildings because not we only have a couple buildings that can handle certain type of blast. If you go into downtown Charlotte, you know, the, the courthouse in downtown Charlotte, I think I read an article, it can take like a seven megaton blast or something like, we don't, we don't have that. We don't have that ballistic rating. And I would tell you that trying to create these, these pull-off spots in front of these buildings for the handicapped parking or the drop-off is very, very challenging. So early on when you deal with design, be thinking about not just accessibility in terms of the building, but also parking. And it's not even if it's somebody that's handicapped. What if it's just somebody who is, is elderly and uses a walker, right? doesn't even have a handicap placard? What are you providing for that person to access your building or your services that you're providing? So we spend a lot of time looking at that and, and trying to make those decisions and, and prioritizing on that. Yeah. That's actually really good to hear. Um, you know, it's kind of nice to, you know, we have those financial and by the rules types of decisions, but we also have those um, common sense and, you know, let's just do the right thing kind of decisions as well. Um, I worked with somebody in the past that, you know, he had a great statement that, you know, it may not make financial system, financial sense that we you know, do this recycling effort, for example, but, you know, it makes good people sense for us to do that. So um, that's really good to hear that you guys take all of that into consideration as well. Yeah, there's a certain moral responsibility that you have to have. And we actually work with our, our area uh, ADA advocate, uh, who's Julia Sane now, although I think she's retiring in a year. 
So we actually host, uh, Cabarrus County hosts quarterly ADA trainings where we bring in probably, we're, we're doing it virtually now, but it used to be in person. We probably have 40 to 50 people, both county employees, everybody from construction standards, you know, building inspectors, uh, our library people, our parks people, our infrastructure and asset management people. And we bring in other people from municipalities. So city of Concord, Kannapolis, Harrisburg, and she'll do, you know, a two and a half hour training on, we, we pick topics. So the last topic we chose was ADA and COVID because there's obviously with masks and things like that, there's like, there's a huge impact to some of that. So um, she'll pick topics and go through them. And a lot of times we deal, like a lot of the topic I keep going back to is surfaces. So the types of things I'm talking about, you know, what does the trail need to be made of? When is it okay to use crushed stone? What is really considered compacted? You know, are, do you have to do asphalt and concrete? And next thing you know, you're doing that in a floodplain because that's where all your greenways and your parks are. And then they're being undermined by the water that comes out of the creek. Like there's a, a domino effect to everything. So I think that having kind of a, a, a good grasp of all that is a positive for anybody that's going into facility management or construction, kind of understanding the impacts of that's a big deal. And, you know, you just try to think that you're always going to know somebody who uses a cane or a walker or struggles or has eyesight issues, uh, things like that. I mean, you're always going to know somebody that whether they're your family or not. So kind of keep that in mind as you're, as you're designing and maintaining those. Mm -hmm. That's good advice. Okay. So I think that we're, um, pretty much at the end of our risk management session. Was there anything that I've missed, Kyle, or anything that you want to throw in there for the students in terms of risk management? Um, no, I would say that it, it, depending on what your job is, in, in terms of, there's a certain portion of risk management that's ahead of the game, meaning during design, okay? And if you, if you do it long enough, you know what's going to cause problems as you start to see it on paper. Um, even if you're two-dimensionally challenged, uh, which I used to be early in my career, and now I'm, now I'm actually probably better on two-dimensional. I don't even really look at the rendering sometime. I really look at, at the two dimensions. Um, I would tell you that a lot of it comes ahead of the game, but then afterwards, you might not get the complaints directly. It kind of depends on what your, your job is. So I, I would tell you that, you know, get to know your risk management people or your safety officers. It, typically they're lumped in, in the same group. Maybe they might be like a, a spinoff of HR too in there somehow. They're all kind of conglomerated in one group. You know, work with those folks. And what I have found is that when I get reports of, it, of an issue, um, the, the right details aren't, aren't, obtained. So I always say, just get the person's number and let me meet with them and, and, and show them and understand what's exactly hard for them. Because I don't currently have those disabilities and I, I can't, you can't walk in somebody else's shoes and really understand, you know, there's times I'm talking to people on the phone where they're trying to tell me what their issue is in the building or you know, and this is not even just ADA. This is just all types of risk. Oh, well, I can't see this or you know, I don't, I, I don't know how to get to the entrance or I don't understand where to park, the wayfinding signage. Sometimes when you talk to people, you know, especially when you get it like second or third hand, you know, the responses I get is there's no signage downtown that shows anybody where the courthouse is. And I was like, how about look for the tallest building and the 27 signs that show you where it is. So sometimes, you know, calling that person and just talking to them or just saying, hey, 
meet down here and show me what the problem is. You'd be surprised on the improvements you can make based on what they say that they were really right. And you're just not looking at it from the right perspective. Keep in mind, every single one of you is going to become some sort of master of their own universe in terms of you're either going to manage a bunch of buildings or you're going to build a bunch of buildings. Okay. And you're going to know that building like the back of your hand, whether you built it or whether you manage it, because it's just, it's the nature of the beast. But those folks that are calling with the complaints, they don't know that. They go there once, twice, three times, maybe four times a year. They don't know it like you do. So they don't, they, they don't know when to pick up their feet. They don't know when to, you know, jump up the stair and that kind of, they don't know that. So try to keep that in mind that um, not everyone is a master of their universe, because I know it's an extreme challenge for me to remember that, but that's kind of the best approach to take at it. Uh, also great advice. Yeah, we tend to forget that as instructors as well, that we really know the topic and, you know, how do you give it to those people who are being introduced to a topic for the first time, kind of the uh, similar analogy, but um, yeah, you know, I, I think that's great advice and something that, you know, hopefully we can all keep in mind in the long term, but all right. Well, Kyle, once again, we just uh, appreciate so much your, your time and your wisdom on these topics and um, hope you can join us again soon. Sure. Well, thank you very much for having me. We'll talk to you.